Romans chapter 10. We left off at the end of verse 4. So if you're new to Calvary Chapel or you missed a couple weeks, we've been making our way through the entire book of Romans, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in the city in Italy called Rome. And it's just laying out all kinds of doctrinal truths about the grace of God. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul focuses on God's grace and his salvation for Israel, his plan for the nation of Israel. Because the great question comes as Paul shares all this information with the people in Rome, the great question is, well, if all this is true, and all that we read about Jesus Christ and the righteousness being right with God, being all right with God through him and not through my good deeds, if that's all true, then how in the world did your chosen people, the Jews, with all of their privilege and all of their history and all of their tradition and the giving of the law and all that they, how did they miss it? How'd they miss it? And so chapter nine talks about the sovereignty of God, that part of the reason they missed it was because it was happening according to God's plan. And God has chosen, he's sovereign, means he has absolute power to make choices. You have the power to make choices. I have the power to make choices. God has the power to make choices. And with his power to make choices, he's chosen that people would get saved, not because they earned it, but because God showed them mercy. And that was a struggle. So in his sovereignty, God says, I'm choosing that those that get saved would be from Jews and non-Jews, everybody, and everybody would come the same way by mercy. See, the opposite of mercy would be, I've earned it. And that's what the Jews thought. They were special. They had all their privileges and they thought they had earned what God was going to give them. And that's why it was so difficult for them to understand and accept. So chapter nine lays out God's sovereignty. And then you say, well, maybe if God is sovereign and he chooses and he has a plan, then maybe people that don't get saved don't get saved because God didn't choose that they would be saved. The other side of the coin, that may be God's fault that people don't get saved. And so chapter 10 answers that question. Chapter nine, God is sovereign. And we don't have any room to question his choices, do we? Paul made the example of where the like the clay and he's like the potter, you know? I mean, who are we to question God? And we do that too, don't we? We want to question, well, God, why did you choose that? And God says, I mean, I could explain it to you, but you'd never get it. Like I couldn't even begin to to unravel that for you. So that's nine. Chapter 10 now is man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. So no, God is not to blame because people have control over some things in their own life. Now, it's not man's responsibility to achieve his salvation. It's man's responsibility to believe what God says about his salvation. So man's responsible for his own belief. Do you know you have control over what you believe? Some people say, well, I can't. How do I control what I believe? Well, hang with me. We'll get through that as we go through this fairly short section from verse 5 on down through Uh, Verse 13 is all we'll try to cover this morning. So chapter 10 deals with the responsibility of man to believe. So why did the Jews miss it? Because they didn't believe. And they could have, but they didn't. So chapter 10 really tells us how does salvation actually work? Look back at verse 4, chapter 10, verse 4. Paul had said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
It doesn't say Christ is the end of the law. The law is good. The law is eternal. But Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. So once you believe in Jesus, once you trust him for your salvation, instead of trusting yourself, then you don't need the law anymore in your life. You have the spirit of God filling you. You see, we live with these scales in our lives, don't we? These gigantic moral and spiritual scales. And Paul says in verse four, he says, Christ is the end of legalism. Anybody know what a legalistic church is? It's all based on rules and my performance and what I have to do. It's all based on how much is on my side of the scale. Ah, I I studied my Bible today. Boom, that goes on this side of the scale. Oh, I I prayed this morning for 10 minutes. Boom, on the scale. We put all that on the scale because we're trying to make that scale heavy enough. And by the way, do you know the word glory is the same word that means weight. When something carries a lot of weight, it's glorious. There's only 12 people that have ever walked on the moon. And so when you could show up at a party or show up at an engagement and people are bragging about what they've done, one of those astronauts there, like no matter what you say, he says, yeah, I've walked on the moon. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm a nobody. You know, you, have you walked on the moon? No, I didn't think so. See, that's all that stuff on our glory. We put that on our side of the scale. Here's what I've done. And so when it comes to spiritual life, that's kind of how we approach it, right? Well, I've done these things. And you'll know, you'll know that you think that way because sometimes you say, well, how could God let this happen to me? See, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done the other thing, and I've read my Bible, and I even go to church on Wednesday nights. I go to Saturday morning men's prayer. I've done all these things, Lord, and how could you let this happen? You see, you've betrayed your real philosophy is that you're operating based on a set of scales because you've done spiritual things. Now God owes you. And that's the one, one of the challenges with legalism is that you feel entitled, which is what the Jews did. They felt that they had done all these things and God owed them salvation. And chapter 10 says that man's responsibility is not to achieve it, but that salvation is a gift of God by belief to everybody. Chapter 9, everybody gets saved by the mercy of God, not by their own works. Chapter 10, everybody gets saved by believing in God, not by their good works. Does that make sense? The other side of the coin is sometimes if you have that scale, you never feel worthy. If you're living by legalism, you're like Eeyore, you know, you're like, I just never, I'm never good enough. I never deserve anything. God never does anything for me. You know, woe is me. You got that victim mentality. So what fun is that, right? Then you live with all this guilt and you live with all this worthlessness. And so chapter 10, verse four, Paul says, if you believe in Christ, throw the scales out the window. The scales are done. You don't need scales anymore. Because you have Jesus, you have perfect rightness with God. You are perfect in God's eyes. We're struggling with you, but you're perfect in God's eyes. You get what I'm saying, right? Should we laugh at that? I'm not sure. He's talking about us. Christ is the end of the law, end of legalism. Now, verse five, Paul continues to speak to the Jews. Remember, he is reaching out to Jewish people, or you could say religious people, people that trust in their religious routines and they keep like superstitious about it, right? How many of you got superstitious about like, I didn't read the Bible today and that's why I got a flat tire. I knew it, I knew it. I didn't read this morning. I left the house, I didn't read, got a flat tire. I'm all, I'm I'm never not reading again. But you missed the grace of God. The, The amazing thing is we don't get flat tires 
every day. See, you've missed that thought process. And so Paul knows the mind of the Jew. He knows the mind of the religious person because that's who he was. And he knows how that thinking process works. And he says in verse five, says, so let's keep going down this line about legalism and performance-based church. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law, this one side of the coin, the man who does those things shall live by them. So the law says, and he quotes back from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the law says, doing equals living. All the pressure's on me. Man, that's a big load to carry, isn't it? And how do you ever know if you do enough? I mean, this is the challenge. Let me just pause one second here and remind you that the legal system, even in America, does not work based on a scale system, right? There's a guy, I think his name was Dennis Rader, if I'm thinking correctly. He was a serial killer. And he finally got caught. He was very cocky about what he'd done, and he was sending notes to the police. And he was known as the BTK murder, bind, torture, kill, a number of years ago. And when they finally discovered who it was, you know what they found out? Not only was he a member of a church, but he was also had just been voted onto his church council. So if he shows up in the courtroom, and the courtroom, they say, well, here's the things you're guilty of. And here's, boom, you know, you're a serial killer. Boom, this goes on this side of the scale. Well, and he says, but wait a second, I was a member of a church. And wait a second, wait a second, and I was on church council. I mean, I served at my church. I didn't just show up on Sunday. I served there. And he was a compliance officer for a local neighborhood. So if it was about weighing out, if the justice system is about doing enough good things to outweigh your bad things, it's really not justice, right? It comes down to you're on trial, not for what you've done wrong. So the whole legal system blows apart when you start to think about it that way. But so many live in that mindset that the man who does those things shall live by them. And that's true. The problem is, can we do those things? I mean, can we live a perfect moral life? So the answer is no. So it's not that the Old Testament was wrong. If a man could do that, he would live. The problem is a man can't do that. No one can live that way. The law has a purpose. Listen, the law has a purpose. The purpose of the law is to show you how unspiritual you are. And once the law does that, and it leaves you dangling, we've been through this in Romans, from that place that you cry out to God, and that's when you get saved. The law's purpose is to drive you in your insufficiency and your weakness morally and spiritually to drive you to Christ. And once it's done that, it's done its job. And so there's this other righteousness that comes. Verse six says, instead of by the law, that doesn't work. We are weak, too weak to do that. Verse six says, but the righteousness of faith, he's telling his Jewish friends, there's another way. There's a righteousness that comes from faith. Faith is just trusting putting your trust in something. And it better be trustworthy because the law person puts their trust in who? Themselves. I had to repent this morning in prayer time. You know why? Because I was up late studying last night and my wife made cookies before she went to bed. Now, she, now let me tell you something about Helga. I'm going to get in trouble. So this is just between you and me, okay? She sometimes likes to have a cookie for breakfast. And that's all I saved her. One, out of all that she made, I was just chowing on the the cookies last. I had a weak moment, right? I was studying. I was drawing close to God. And when I get close to God, I get hungry. (laughs) (laughs) 
So she woke up and all I heard, you know, I was getting ready for church. She went to the kitchen to have her couple of cookies for breakfast. And she said, oh, you are in trouble. And I said, it's the body of flesh, honey. It's not me. It's the body of sin. Anyway, enough about my personal problems and marital issues. (laughs) I am just way too weak and inconsistent. Have you come to that reality in your life? I mean, have you been honest enough with yourself? Look, church, we got to put off the masks. We got to put away the hypocrisy of pretending we're something we're not. And too many churches are still living. The church talks about Jesus, but then lives under law and lives under pressure and lives under condemnation and lives under comparison. Enough of that. There's another way. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Now he begins to quote a couple other places in the Old Testament. Just hang with me. Here's what the righteousness of faith says. If you're going to do it by faith, here's what faith says. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, to the Jewish person, to the religious person, what I just read is absolutely crazy. Crazy. You mean I don't have to do this? Nope. You mean I don't have to do that? Nope. We don't have to tithe? Nope. You mean we don't have to, you know, join the church, you know, to sign up the roster and the membership? Nope. You mean I don't have to, for the Jew, go through the circumcision thing and all that? You mean I don't have to keep the Sabbath? Nope. None of that stuff. Do you know how radical a thought that was to them? How is a person saved? Right there. And we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. So first he says, so the, again, speaking to the Jew, he says, the righteousness of faith says this way. And the first thing he says, he says, do not say in your heart. Now he reaches back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. So the rest of his quote, listen carefully, the rest of his quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 about the abyss and who's going to go up and who's going to go down. But he says, before I get to that, I got to quote this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 9. Just these few words, do not say in your hearts. That's what he says to the Jew, because he knows the Jew. He knows the religious person, and he knows exactly the conversation that they're having with themselves in their heart. See, that's the most important conversation you have ever in your life is the one you have in your heart. The one that no one else hears and no one else knows about. Because the heart is where you really believe what you really believe. So you can fool us. You can hide what's in your heart in front of us. But that's what's going to really direct your life. Whatever you say to yourself in your heart is really what you're going to live by. And you have to change that conversation in your heart. You see, a lot of Christians will say the right things. We know the Bible. We know what the Bible says about Jesus. We know what the Bible says about the resurrection. But unless that conversation happens in your heart and not in your head, not just in your head, unless that conversation happens in your heart and you convince yourself that the scriptures are true, it'll never change your life. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how many Christians we come in here, we talk about one thing and then we go out, we live something completely different? It's because you never change the conversation in your heart. And that's why Paul says, hey, don't say in your heart. But, 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 but Paul, no, don't say in your heart. You're going to begin to question it, begin to challenge it. And the challenge is, he says, don't say in your heart. And then again, quoting from Deuteronomy, when Moses said this, it had to do with the law. God had told him, hey, 
you guys, when you find things going poorly for yourselves as Jews, you need to turn back to God and love God with all your heart. That's what you need to do. Turn back to God, love him with your heart. And then he says to them, and this is not a difficult commandment. It's not like someone has to go on this great journey up to heaven like it's some high, lofty spiritual truth that only the very few can understand and bring it down. I got invited to go to a lecture at UVA, a physics lecture. I mean, I was a biology major, but man. So I go to this physics lecture. The lecturer is a guy from Princeton. And you want to talk about being in over your head. He's a physicist, PhD, and the topic was the physics of life. So that got my attention. I enjoy that kind of stuff. So we sit in the lecture and there's like all these brilliant academic minds that are there. And I'm listening to this lecture. I'm getting like 30%. Like this is, and he was bringing it down, right? He was as low as he could reach, right? From his intellectual seat. So it was a high as lofty truth, right? So I'm like, I need an interpreter for this. I can't understand what this guy can, you understand what he's saying? I don't know what he's saying. It was awesome. And I'll tell you more about it later. So the temptation is to say, well, we're victims. We need someone else to bring this truth, this truth down to us. Now, got to bring it down to my level. Or they would say, it's not too mysterious. Maybe it's just too far off. We can't comprehend it. It's too deep. You ever talk to someone who was just too deep? So deep, they don't even know what they're talking about. You go to some yoga class and the yoga instructor's talking about the ethos and the ethereal this and like, what are you talking about? I just want to go up afterwards and say, do you have any idea what you just said? You ever been to a class like that or been to a philosophy class? Like, do you know what you're saying? I don't know. It's too deep for me. You know, have you ever met a Christian like that? Well, I, I got, there's truths in the Bible. You know, there was a race of people before Adam. Well, it's not in the Bible, but it's deep. I'm not sure you're ready for that yet. Beware if anybody ever says that nonsense to you. It's too deep. It's too deep. You, you know, the real truths of Christian faith, they're just too deep for you. And see, Paul takes it. He doesn't apply it to the law. He applies it to Christ. He says, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. See, did you have to participate in getting Jesus to come to earth? Or did he come all on his own? Say he came on his own. Yes, he came on his own because he loved you. Because he loves you. So we didn't have to participate with that. And then, well, what about the resurrection? Easter Sunday. How many of you needed to give God a hand with that? How many of you can take credit? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, but I had to help him a little bit. You know, I had to roll that stone away for him because he was stuck. You know, he rose from the dead, but he just couldn't get out of the tomb. And good thing I was there to help him get out. Oh, come on. I mean, what is it, what is it in us that is driven to try to elevate ourselves above each other? Do you find that in your life too? Do you find that yucky little part of you that tries to always find the angle to elevate yourself above others? Oh, come on, I'll read your Facebook page. I'll find it there. What is it about? I mean, I've, I've been going to the gym since I was like 16 years old and you want to talk about a place where that, everybody's measuring themselves against each other and who's bigger and who's stronger and who's lifting more. And it can be academic, who's got more letters after their name. We're all trying to elevate ourselves. And then you know what? That junk slips into church. Well, I speak in tongues. Oh, I speak in tongues, or I have dreams, or I have prophecies. Or, hey, look, you don't do anything on your own. The problem with Christianity is not that it's too mysterious, or not that it's too deep. I mean, there's some depth to it, and there's some mystery about it. But the basics of Christianity, the 
that's not the problem. The problem is it's too simple. And we can't take credit for it. You see, there's only one all-star in the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that where all the weight is placed. So we don't get to take credit for anything because he did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain on my life, but he, he washed it white as snow. So if it's not too mysterious and it's not too far away, again, we didn't help with the resurrection. Verse 8, Paul says, so what does it say? If you can't be a victim, you know, if that's not the problem, then what is it? How does this work? Verse 8 says, but the word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That the problem is not too difficult, far off, mysterious, too deep. It's so simple. It's right there. There's nothing new. You've heard it. They knew it. They knew that they had to turn to God. It was not only in their knowledge, it was in their heart. They knew it in their heart. Like, that's where the trouble is. It's in the heart, right? It's not that I don't know it. It's that I resist it because it's too simple. The problem of the cross for the Jews was it was too foolish. A crucified Messiah, that didn't compute to them. That's just like, you know, what do we do with that? Not what they were expecting, not what they wanted. And that's the challenge. The cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness. And Isaiah, in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he got criticized not because his message was too difficult. What did Isaiah get criticized for? They criticized him because his message was too simple, too elementary. Isn't that the beautiful thing about, about the gospel? You don't have to be a PhD to understand that you're a sinner. Jesus is your savior. If you trust him, you'll live forever. I mean, how simple could it be? Kids, go back into kids' ministry. Go sit in one of the kids' classrooms. Kids, they hear about it. They hear about their misbehavior, that they're sinners and God loves them. And God sent his son, Jesus, to die for them so they could have eternal life. And they go, really? Yeah. Well, I want Jesus. Yeah, that's right. That's why Jesus said, let the little children come. Let let them come. See, little children are drawn to Jesus. It's us adults that go, I'm not sure about this. The word is near you. So no one can make the excuse. So this passage does away with all excuses. There is no excuse like, well, I couldn't understand it. Shame on pastors for making it too difficult, right? Shame on pastors for using lofty language that people don't understand. I've been to some churches like that where it wasn't a physics lecture, but it sounded like it. I mean, Warren Wearsby, great Bible commentator, great pastor. He said, you know, we're feeding sheep, not giraffes. Put the cookies on the lowest shelf. I mean, make it, it's clear. Make it simple. Make it understandable. God doesn't want to hide it from you to make you search it out. He wants to give it to you right there. You don't have to work for it. It's right there today, right now. The message of God, the message of faith that you can be saved by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And I can tell it to you and it can get into your ear and it can get into your head and I can put it in your mouth and I can close your mouth. But you know what I can't do? I can't make you swallow it. Only you can swallow it. But not because it's too difficult. That's what he's telling his Jewish friends. That's what he's telling his religious friends. The word of faith, the word of works, the word of law is really complicated. The Jews had to keep 613 laws. 
And then on top of that, they had commentary on their laws that defined what it meant to keep those laws. And they were pages and volumes long. Do you know how difficult it was to be a Jew? But the more difficult it was, you know what happened? The more pride they had in it. And that was the problem. This did not allow for pride. And that was a struggle. The message of faith is so simple, which is great. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. So the first thing he says, you just got to confess it. You got to say it. The word to confess means to agree with, to say the same thing. God says, Jesus is Lord. You know what Lord means? We don't use that word. Like when's the last time you showed up at work and you called your boss Lord? He would drop to his knees and cry. What did you just say, Lord? But that's what it means. It means boss or the one who has power, the one who's in control. It's used of fathers as heads of their homes. It's used of the gods to be Lord over the people. They're in the position of power. So the word Lord, this means to be the one who is in power. See, legalism is in some senses easier because it just involves the external person. Anybody can follow the rules. You can put a monkey in a three-piece suit and hand him a King James Bible and let him sit in church, right? But see, the message of faith involves your heart. And that's where the problem is. Because first, you have to confess with your mouth. Now, that's not just... I believe Jesus is Lord. Not just saying it, but it's actually saying it in agreement with, yes, I agree. I agree. I believe that Jesus is not just the Lord, listen, but he is my Lord. He is my boss. He is my master. John MacArthur was asked, how do you boil down the Christian faith in its simplest terms? Jesus is Lord. Three words. You can boil the Christian faith down to three words. Jesus is Lord. And the question isn't if he's just Lord in general. The question is, have you made him the ruler, the boss of your life? You get something in return for that, don't you? He's a great, listen, he's a great master. Unless you don't like loving people, then you're going to find it difficult. He's going to tell you to do things that you're going to struggle with but he's always right. And you always come back to him going, I was wrong and you were right. But you confess that with your mouth. And that was part of the early tradition in the church. So you confess with your mouth, but also he says, and believe in your heart. Where's belief happen? Belief happens, trust happens in the heart. That's where trust occurs. Trust is a, a confidence. It means I stop doubting. Means I, well, now, you know, people have doubts. It means I stop having doubt as a way of life. To confess that Jesus is Lord means that I say the same thing as God, it means I stop arguing with God about it. Hey, do me a favor. Just drop your eyes down real quick. We're not going to get here until next week, but drop your eyes down to verse 21. I didn't do this first service, but we'll do this right now. Look down at verse 21. Don't forget about the context for right now, but just see what Isaiah wrote. All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And the only thing I want to point out to you, and I have in my Bible, you can't see it, but I got a big arrow from the word confess to the word contrary. And there's a reason I have that arrow, because those in the Greek are opposite words. The word in Greek for confess is homologeo, or where we get the word homologous, or the same, of the same kind of thing. And the word down here for contrary is anti-legeo or anti-lego, 
which means to speak against or to be contrary to or to dispute with. So the Jews, God was stretching out his hands to a people that were disputing and arguing with him about salvation. And Paul is saying, stop arguing with God. Stop being anti, you know, anti-lego or anti-word, disputing with God and start agreeing with God. You see the difference? You see the contrariness of that? All right, back up to uh, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that Jesus is alive. Remember when Paul got saved? God knocked him off his horse, so to speak, the road to Damascus. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And what does Paul say? What do you want me to do, Lord? Same Greek word, kurios. What do you want me to do, master? And who was he talking to? He was talking to a living Jesus. Jesus is alive. So Paul knew both of these things personally. 4 verse 10 says, with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's pretty easy, isn't it? If you can deal with the heart issue, salvation is not based on what you do. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to go on some great journey or great trek to get saved. You don't have to do all these mighty deeds. You just bow your heart to the Savior and say, Jesus, today, you're my Lord. I'm giving my life to you. Put it all out there for you, Lord. Whatever I have, it's yours. And what's he say? What's the guarantee? To be saved. That's the guarantee. You will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what, church? Saved from all of the penalty of all the sins that you've been trying to make up for by your good deeds. All the guilt, all the feelings of worthlessness, all of that. You're saved from all of that. You're rescued. Now watch what happens. For Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's fantastic. So there's no distinction, Jew or Greek. Doesn't matter. Smart or less smart. PhD, high school dropout. What would keep a person from calling on the, what would keep a person from saying, God help me? What keeps a person from doing that? Give me one word. Pride. Oh, you, how did you know that? Oh, you guys must have been studying. That's it. That's it. It's not a difficult message. You know, imagine, imagine that we talk about the floods we've seen, like the Texas floods, you know? And imagine people on their rooftops, they climbed out of their roofs and climbed out of their second story windows and up onto their roofs and there they're waiting and their rescue boats are coming by. And uh, people are crying out to be saved. They know that they're stuck. They know that they're in trouble. They know that they need to be rescued. And there comes the rescue boat and the rescue boat, you know, stands a little ways off and calls out to the people that they're saying, come, come get us, come rescue. They're desperate, right? Can you get the picture in your head of desperate people on their roofs, the floodwaters rushing and rising? I mean, think about the days of Noah. And then finally them going, I need help. I cannot, I, we don't have a rowboat. We got no way to save ourselves. And then the rescue team going, uh, wait a second, we need to check your record first. We need to see if you've been tithing. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's a, no, that's a no tithing house. We're out of here. Good luck. And we're, no, 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 they're, they're the wrong skin color. Sorry. No, 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 no high school education there. Sorry, we're, we're no, can't, sorry, can't save you. See, but that's how the Jews would have had it. 
The Jews would have had the boat stop at their houses, but leave everybody else to die. There's a parameter for people that get saved. God says there is a parameter. And all it involves is you crying out for help. That's it. So that person on their roof, all they got to do is cry out for help. God says, I am right there. Will you ever be ashamed? What does he say here? If you cry out, is God going to say, no, sorry, I got other more important people than you to save. Is there anybody more important to God than you? No. But you can't just say that. You got to believe that in your heart. Whoever, listen, this morning, you are now officially educated about what salvation entails. Whosoever cries out to God shall be saved. From the prison, from the street, from the gutter, from the office, from the laboratory, Jesus is Lord.